You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, sending my voice transmitted across the long, long distances, Wade, to let you know you're not alone in the universe. I also hope, Kevin, that you've transmitted your voice so you could also take up an offering. That would be the only fitting thing I can do for this episode. Coming up, we look at James Gray's much-anticipated space drama, Ad Astra. And we're also going to be taking a look at HBO's new Televangelist Gone Wild TV series created by Danny McBride. It's The Righteous Gemstones. It's big dreams and big hair coming up on this episode, episode 218 of Seeing and Believing. You'll be able to access the ship from there. We're approaching. They're gonna come for you, you know. I don't... I don't care anymore. I need to get back now. Do what I can. Good luck. That is a clip, listeners, from Ad Astra. We're going to jump into our review here in a moment. And Kevin, as I was preparing for this episode, I kept thinking to myself, this is why seeing and believing exists. (laughs) We're talking about this science fiction drama that has clear spiritual themes, and we'll, we'll try to dive into that. And then we're talking about an HBO comedy about uh, televangelists. So this is seeing and believing in a nutshell, I feel like. It's just the perfect episode for us. Yeah, we covered the full gamut, and it is actually, although there is one kind of point of commonality between the two, there's a lot to dig into here with the spiritual themes that are brought up in both. So, you know, at least there's kind of that common thread, and again, that common thread fits us pretty well. Yeah, so I'm... I'm really excited about it. I I always love when there are films or television shows that they do have those clear, explicit spiritual connections, and we can just dig into that because that just I, I feel like not that I'm an expert in that, but I'm like that's why I'm a film critic in in a way, if that makes sense. And so I'm excited to jump in here. This week's episode does begin with our discussion of James Gray's newest venture, Ad Astra. Here's the movie's official synopsis. Astronaut Roy McBride, played by Brad Pitt, travels to the outer edges of the solar system to find his missing father, played by Tommy Lee Jones, and unravel a mystery that threatens the survival of our planet. His journey will uncover secrets that challenge the nature of human existence and our place in the cosmos. How's that for a film synopsis? The movie also stars Donald Sutherland, Liv Tyler, and Ruth Nega. Kevin, both you and I have been anticipating Ad Astra for some time now. In addition, we were both fans of Gray's previous film, The Lost City of Z. You even placed it at number four the year that it came out, 2017. Now, I liked it, but I wasn't in like with it, Uh, but I did like it. So as we begin our review, let me ask you this hopefully straightforward question. Did Ad Astra meet your lofty expectations? Well, to that straightforward question, I guess I can give kind of a straightforward answer. I liked it. I'm not in like with it. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> my my real answer would probably be a lot more complicated, and I'm actually excited to talk about it on the show with you, Wade, because I think this is one of those films where simply summing your reaction up in a simple binary choice like thumbs up or thumbs down or star rating or a slot on a top 10 list seems a little bit inadequate. It's a very, there's a lot going on in this film and it has, at least in my opinion, some pretty, you know, significant flaws, but 
all of those flaws are kind of part of the same fabric as the stuff that works so well in this film. So when I find myself trying to boil down my opinion as to what I think about it, it's it's really hard to sum up because all of those things are of a piece. And if you took those flaws out, it would be such a different picture in a lot of ways that it would be difficult to even think of it in the same ways. So I, I have a lot of thoughts on this film, uh, which we'll probably get into in a minute. I, I did like it on balance, though. I guess I can safely say that. I'm curious to know what your take is, though. Yeah, I, I think I, I share some of your opinions. It is a difficult film to tackle, and I, I saw it almost two weeks ago, which I am so happy that I did because I've had an opportunity to really think about this movie. And... I was considering putting a star rating uh, on this film on Letterboxd, and it was just so difficult to do because I I really like this movie. There is, I, I think, one significant flaw, maybe two for me, that that does bug me. But I I had a great time with this picture, and it really is. It really is my my jam, I guess you could say. These types of movies are the the types of movies that I like. And so I think I'm probably going to give this movie more grace than I would give a different type of film that would have the same types of flaws, if if that makes sense. I I was thinking about this movie and people were asking me about it. And one of the answers that I gave them when when they were saying, you know, is this a good film? I I was kind of arguing that I think this movie balances plot and abstract ideas well. So here's what I mean by that. This film does have a big idea. And the big idea is probably a little heavy-handed. And it's just essentially the importance of community and the importance of each other. But there are a number of ideas that kind of glimmer beneath the surface and it does have that abstract feel to the movie. At the same time, this is a pretty clear plot. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. You don't have to be into hardcore science fiction to follow this movie, to even enjoy this movie, uh, to dig into some of the emotional ideas, or even just be engrossed by the tenseness of this film. So it does find, I think, a nice balance there. So I get these big ideas to think about, but I also get a really entertaining, at least in my opinion, an entertaining plot that had me, for the most part, uh, on, on the edge of my seat. Yeah, so I, I have a similar reaction to yours, uh, where you said it kind of balances plot with you know abstract ideas. I, I think the way that I would articulate that personally is that it's um, it's kind of a mood piece in a lot of ways. Like James Gray does a lot with the editing and the sound work in this film, and uh, Hoyt Van Hoytema's cinematography works together with it beautifully to kind of create this mood for the film that persists throughout the twists and turns of the plot. Um, and I think for, for the most part, the plot works with that well too. I think if there's, if there's a place maybe where the film runs into a snag, it's that the, the focus overall of the film is on maintaining this mood and this atmosphere, but for a lot of the payoffs of the film's plot to work out, you have to really be invested in these characters. And I think the it's not so much that the characters are weak, it's more that the film is just not as interested in delving into their psychology quite as much as it is at creating kind of this overall mood as a method for exploring its bigger ideas. And I, I think overall it it works pretty well and as I was saying before, I'm not sure that I would want a version of this movie that doesn't have the kind of heart-on-its-sleeve exploration of its characters uh, longing for transcendence, uh, longing for each other. Um, that is maybe the part of the film that is a little bit 
more artless than the rest of the film, but it's just so nakedly um, sincere, I guess, that I wouldn't really want to lose it, or at least if it were lost, it would just be a completely different experience and a much colder film. I think a lot about the many ways in which the structure of Ad Astra mirrors the structure of 2001 A Space Odyssey. You start off on Earth, and then you move towards the moon, and then you have kind of this this uh, encounter in the outer reaches of the solar system. In 2001, it's near Jupiter. In Ad Astra, it's near Neptune. And all of that kind of, it feels almost as if Gray is intentionally mirroring that structure in some ways, but the place where he chooses to culminate and end the the picture is very different from where Kubrick chooses to. And I actually kind of prefer it to where Kubrick does. I mean, that's kind of, you know, Anyone who listened to our Summer of Stan series kind of knows my thoughts on 2001 already, so that might not come as a surprise to a lot of people. But all that to say, there's a lot of unevenness, I guess, in this film that you can definitely point to and say, oh, you know, it's not like necessarily technically perfect filmmaking, but it's also integral for the film to work at the level that it does and for that reason, I, I'm not sure that I would want it to be any different. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't have a, a ton of problems with the way the story is told. I, I like the earnestness. I do think some of it's a little, little heavy-handed. And I think the voiceover uh, doesn't do the film any favors. I understand it's a part of the plot. So for listeners who maybe haven't seen this movie, Brad Pitt's character he has to do these uh, psychological evaluations, and he does it with technology. And a computer's asking him questions, and he has to answer truthfully, and it's reading his levels. And if he's honest, and they feel like he's, the computer feels like he's stable, then he, then he passes. And so he's sharing all of his thoughts to this computer. And then throughout the film, we we do get those thoughts kind of scrubbed over scenes, and then we also hear his thoughts at times. And it's one of those issues of, of show, don't tell. This film shows us. It also tells us at some points. And I think that's probably the biggest issue for me. At the same time, I think the point that he makes with this character who's distant from everyone else, who doesn't share his feelings with anyone else, sharing it with a computer. I think that's very strong because he is getting, he's getting it all out there, but he's not doing it in a way that will connect him with flesh and blood individuals. So there's this one scene and he's sharing his thoughts and he's really just kind of digging in deep. And then he ends and the computer simply says, okay, you passed. And it's kind of a funny scene, but it, it, it's just true enough, I think, to work. Because in our world, too, uh, what do we do? We use technology to share our feelings. We do it over a keyboard, over a blog, over a tweet, and we kind of get the affirmation from people. But it's easy for us to not truly connect. So I kind of have an interesting relationship with that voiceover feature. I... I like the I like the pessimism and the optimism in this film, and I think it's balanced pretty nicely. And and then too, Kevin, I had a chance to see this in IMAX, and it's shot in thirty five millimeter. You can just feel that grain, and it's a beautiful film. And you use that word mood, and mood is conveyed. There are some amazing images. The mo- uh, moon rover chase scene is going to get a lot of, of talk, but just some of the views on the moon, it, it really is uh, fantastic. And I just, I, just sitting back and watching it, I think is, is enough for me to really like this movie because we get some incredible images here. Yeah, that, that shot where uh, Pitt's moon rover drives, uh, from the the bright side of the moon into the shadowed side of the moon and you can suddenly see all those stars it's just a, a stunning stunning uh 
a series of images and uh, I was really blown away by it by as as well. I was really struck uh by the way that Gray uses space as uh as kind of an explicitly psychological mirror held up to its characters. You already mentioned the psychological profiling that Pitt has to undergo here and there throughout the film and maybe here and there is a little bit of a misnomer it's a lot like this is something that he has to do regularly throughout the film and it's uh so important that it's even part of his mission objectives when he goes on this mission it's made clear that he needs to be heavily psychologically monitored throughout the entire thing for the mission to succeed and the importance of the centrality of that coupled with the uh, scene where he is traveling to Mars, and as soon as they blast off, they they hand out mood, uh, mood stabilizers, like you know, like M and M's. One of them has a little dispenser, and he kind of shoots pills to everyone on the crew. It's like, okay, take your mood stabilizers, and they never really explain why it's necessary for them to have the mood stabilizers. It's just sort of like, oh, well, this is just something we do as part of the mission. It's understood that space is inhospitable it can be isolating and the the humans who uh, adventure into its depths need some chemical forti- fortification in order to kind of keep sane and this is explored from various angles throughout the film and there's one sequence in particular that I thought was really touching it's when uh Pitt's character is interacting with with another character who's who's been uh, in space for a while, and they're, they've had this conversation where this other character has unburdened himself to Pitt. He's sort of you know talked very frankly about uh, the disappointments and uh, and anxieties that his own mission has has brought out in him. And as Pitt is sort of trying to to buck him up and try to you know get him to feel better, he's also doing that while putting him into a spacesuit. He's essentially putting him into this vacuum-sealed armor, and that's kind of part of what's necessary. It's like it's almost as if James Gray is saying, vulnerability in space will kill you, and these characters do everything they can in order to keep themselves from being vulnerable to each other, to themselves. And that's a really poignant theme that I think was... It is explored here much better than it was in a in a film like Interstellar, which was full of uh, of emotions and yet never really found a way to do more than just kind of like try to wring those emotions out of you or out of Matthew McConaughey. In this film, I think it's a lot more successful at finding that emotion and, and finding uh, appropriate visual and thematic uh, underpinnings and ways of expressing that. Yeah, and and I think, too, it kind of goes along with the idea of space travel. And ad astra in Latin means to the stars. There's this kind of general thought that there's hope and there's potential out there. And this film examines how that might not always be the case. So I talked about Duncan Jones's moon. And in that Review when we were we were talking about our, our favorite films from 2009, I mentioned that with every sort of jump uh, in in humanity's uh, exploration, whether they go to the new land or, or the west or wherever that is, the new world, uh, there's always exploitation that comes along with that jump. And why would we think space would be any different here? You see, astronauts now have to carry guns on them. We have space pirates. We have consumerism on the moon. There's this distress call that we find. And, and we, with each step, those scenes might feel a little disjointed, but they work for me because it's highlighting the idea that this is not necessarily what we think it's going to be. And then when we do get to Mars and we do go into this underground bunker, it definitely gives this sense that we're, we're really not supposed to be here. Humans shouldn't live here. 
this is not a hospitable place. And at one point on my notes, I wrote down, it feels like the 1500s. This feels like Jamestown. There's, there's something here that is, is really kind of hearkening back to this new land that is rugged and we have brought evil to it. And so I, I think that's just this completely sort of fascinating idea within the story. I do want to talk about Kevin the spiritual implications of this movie and what this film might be trying to say. There are a number of times when characters pray. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones, we see a recording of him, and he has gone on this mission. You mentioned that they're out by Neptune, and he talks about feeling God and searching for proof of God and proof of alien life. One character prays to St. Christopher. I believe he's the patron saint of, of journeys. And so we get this, we get this sort of spiritual backdrop. And then towards the end, things change and we can't go into spoilers, but I wanted to, to ask you, what do you think the movie's saying about, or do you think it is saying anything about our search for God and our longing to, to know the creator? Uh, here's where we get down to it because I think that's, that's a really interesting question. And I think there's a couple of different ways you can go about answering it. I think in, in a lot of ways, the film does seem to be pretty clearly humanistic in, in kind of its outlook on, on the universe, i.e. it does seem to be suggesting that you know, if there is a God, he's not, not visible, not knowable. So the best thing that people can do is draw close to one another and just be good to one another. As, as a character says towards the end of the film, you know, uh, this character vows to, to love others, to, uh, open himself to others. And, that seems to be at least what the film is explicitly saying out loud is that, you know, if there's a God, we can't really know him. So the best thing is to kind of do what Kurt Vonnegut uh, says we should do, you know, gosh, darn it, babies, you just got to be kind. And so that's kind of one way of coming at it. The other way is to come at it is to look at another moment in the film where there's one character who, who, uh, says, you know, I, I've, I've, uh, I don't think that there's God out there. I just haven't been able to find anything. And there's a scene where another character kind of gain, uh, chooses to gainsay him a little bit and, and points out maybe there's something that he's missing. And at least as Christian viewers coming to that, you can really see almost a, um, a an argument for natural revelation in that moment the idea that there's so much wonder and beauty in the universe how did all that wonder and beauty come to be and that certainly points us as believers in a very very clear direction and so i think that even though gray himself in his screenplay might be saying one thing there's a lot in his screenplay that seems to complicate that theme a little bit and point us in a different direction. So that's kind of my fumbling attempt to to answer that question. I'm curious to know what, what you have to say about it, Wade, though. No, I you I feel like you really do nail it because I I, I feel like I've seen people kind of land on 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 one side and there is material that seems to suggest, hey, we go searching for God but really, we just, we have each other. And you explained it well. There are other moments, though, where there is a deeper longing in the universe. And part of it seems to suggest that we go looking for, quote unquote, proof of God. That's kind of misguided. Instead, the proof is there. We just have to know where to look. And I feel like there's a, a very important scene near the end of the movie, and I and perhaps because of spoilers, a lot of people haven't talked about this, but there is a character who wants to give up, 
and they look and they see a star, which I, I think it's probably our sun. And perhaps someone could interpret that as a calling back to Earth, but the Earth, uh, the sun doesn't revolve around the Earth. The sun is right something that illuminates the entire solar system. And it almost offers this sense that, that there's this force out there, this guiding light. And I was reminded of, I, I was, I just finished reading The Return of the King, the last Lord of the Rings book. And towards the end, uh, Sam is, is, uh, he's discouraged and he looks up and he sees this star. And it just, it's a beautiful passage and, and there's this hope there. And as I'm watching the movie, I feel that hope. And it, it, it was this emotional response to that, that, oh, there, there is something more. And so as you mentioned, sure, there are some things in the screenplay that seem to suggest X, but the filmmaking, at least my response is I'm made to feel like there is more than X. So it, it is a little more complicated than I, than I think, um, even, you know, some people have suggested. Yeah, I think that that's a, a good way to put it. That that Lord of the Rings passage, you know, the 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 moment where Sam looks at the star and he, and he thinks, you know, the shadow cannot conquer forever, even though he's surrounded by, you know, all this all this darkness is, you're right, that's something that hadn't occurred to me, a, a kind of a a way of looking at that moment where where this one character contemplates giving into despair and realizes that there's still there's still so much to do and there's still so much to live for and maybe even hope for and that moment of decision is in a lot of ways that's the film's climax the whole film has been building up to the moment of well what is brad pitt going to discover once he gets to neptune but in a lot of ways the way that encounter works out is maybe a little bit different than you might expect from a sci-fi action movie and it goes in a it kind of zigs where you might expect it to zag and in doing so i think it kind of does what gray's been doing throughout the film which is to surprise you with quiet moments uh more so than leading you in the direction you might expect the genre to progress i i don't know i think that's a really strong moment and i'm i'm with you that's it's very emotional in, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I could, I couldn't help but feel emotional. And I, I, perhaps even this is where, this is where the voiceover kind of, uh, frustrates me because the visuals and, and Pitt's performance do a fantastic job of kind of putting all of this together. I think that Brad Pitt is in for a fantastic year. I mean, he, he I think he turned in a great performance with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think his performance here is very good from the just the eye twitches to this internal man expressing these emotions uh, almost through his face. Now, he does it through his words, but he does it through his face so well. And, and that's hard to nail, that internal personality, that stoic personality. And he does... I think a fantastic job and a really a lot to like with this movie. And it's, it's one that I really do want to see again. And I hope I have a chance to, to see it in theaters because it just seeing it on the big screen was, was an amazing experience. Yeah. Same here. I uh, would really like the chance to see it on the big screen again. Listeners, if you have seen it on the big screen and have some thoughts to add to this conversation, obviously there's a lot to, to dig through and mull over in Ad Astra. It's currently in theaters. If you want to let us know your thoughts on it, you can uh, tweet us at cbelievepod or email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. In our second segment, we're going to be offering our review of The Righteous Gemstones.
That song is Resurrection by Evan Schaefer. We really appreciate everyone who's taken an opportunity to rate and review us on iTunes as well as support us through our Patreon page. Anything that you can do for the show is much appreciated and we're we're extremely grateful for that. If you would like to support us on Patreon, we have a number of different levels, donation levels, and one of those, my favorite, Kevin, is the what can you buy for $5 level. And I wanted to ask you that question today. What could someone buy for $5? Uh, $5 would get you a ringtone of the crying scene with Matthew McConaughey from Interstellar. (laughs) Just Matthew McConaughey just absolutely going to pieces every time somebody calls you on the phone. I I think that's amazing. And (laughs) I will say this. To all the Texas Longhorn fans, you could play that after watching the highlights from the LSU college football game. So I'll just throw that out there. (laughs) I I do not understand that reference. Did the the Longhorns not do do something that you wanted them to do or did they do something you you didn't want them to do how what, what's going on well, here? okay so i'm i'm not a texas longhorns fan uh i, I like them. they're fine you know they're from texas uh, i'm a georgia bulldog fan uh but uh recently they lost a really big game to the lsu tigers and i like to just kind of rib the longhorn fans you know just kind of mess with them a little bit because it's fun my in-laws are Longhorn oh, okay. fans, so, so yeah. So this is just this is just a way for you to stir the pot from your throne mm. in in seeing and believing land. Is is that it? I'm yeah. I'm not sure that I entirely approve of this endeavor, Wade. <laughs> well, I will say this: there is a connection. Matthew McConaughey is a big Longhorn fan, and he was at the game, oh. and you know the camera kept going back to him, and when they when they kind of <laughs> lost the game, he was just super sad. I think he cursed. If I'm reading lips correctly, uh, in the Matthew McConaughey way, so yeah, that's that was the connection point with the crying and all of that. But but he he didn't like you know have the the interstellar go to pieces faces face <laughs> not not on, on camera. Him. Who knows okay. what happened later? Maybe, maybe yeah, he saved that for when he was back in the car. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, if you don't need a crying ringtone, you can always direct that five dollars to our Patreon page. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. If you uh, feel like maybe donating to the Christ and Pop Culture podcast family say rather than just seeing and believing like maybe you like our show but you know you don't want to just give all your wealth just to us Mm -hmm. you know first of all you should just give it all to us but if you don't (laughs) want to give it all to us there is another way that you can support us you can become a member of christ and pop culture that'll gain you access to our members only forum on facebook as well as our monthly member offerings it will also help support our sister podcast persuasion which wade has just fired up their their newest season so i'm excited yes i i am very excited about this because it follows the creative process. That's their that's their season. And uh, let me let me read you a little blurb. In this season of Persuasion, Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson kick off a new series called The Creative Process, exploring how the emergence of the gig economy is shaping our creative pursuits. That just sounds fascinating so i am excited to listen to this episode as well as the rest of the season and we listen to it on the regular it's definitely worth checking out if you want to support them and us and all of the good writing that goes on at christandpopculture.com you can just go to that url that i just said look for the button in the top right hand corner become a member and follow the directions it's that easy do y'all want to see a sneak peek Oh, yeah, I, I think we got to go to a commercial. Oh, I don't quick. think we're going to take a break yet, because guess what? I wore my clogging shoes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. God's business here. Let's do it. Oh, uh, I, I, I think Eli needs to take a commercial break. Oh. Just leave the dancing to us, Eli. Come on now. The rest of us, we're going to sing and we're going to dance. Hallelujah. 
said I'm gonna misbehaving. Welcome back to the second half of our show. I considered reading that last sentence in my best televangelist voice, you know, maybe going for a Benny Hinn kind of vibe. I decided to spare everybody's eardrums and not do that. But the temptation was strong, Wade. Oh, the temptation was strong. <laughs> now I'm going to be thinking about doing that the entire episode. It just... You just you're tempting me right now, Kevin. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe we can do that uh, when we when we finish recording, or maybe we can do it at the end. Maybe save a little something for the next blooper reel. Yeah. whenever that well, airs. You don't know. I'm actually wearing a white suit right now, so <laughs> I'm just really getting into this episode. I I mean I have to say, Wade, you do have the the kind of hair that would that would work pretty well for kind of like combing it, slicking it back, and kind of poofing <laughs> yeah. it up a little bit. You could pull it off. I, I am not lying. It depends on your definition of pull it off. Could I make it happen? <laughs> yes. Could I pull it off? I, I don't know if anybody could do that. Uh, well, I, I hope not. I hope nobody tries. But we are talking about televangelists, of course, because on this segment, we're going to be talking about a show that's all about televangelists. The Righteous Gemstones, the new HBO series created by Danny McBride, represents the latest collaboration between McBride and executive producer and director David Gordon Green, who also serves as a director here and there throughout the show's first six episodes, which have aired so far. The series stars John Goodman as Dr. Eli Gemstone, the patriarch of a family of televangelists who is entering old age, fresh off the death of his wife and telecast partner. His three children, played by Danny McBride himself, Adam Devine, and Edie Patterson, each have their own barely hidden flaws and neuroses. Devine's Kelvin is the baby of the family and is desperate to follow in his father's evangelizing footsteps. Patterson's Judy chafes under her exclusion from the family business because of her gender. And McBride's Jesse has maybe the biggest secret of all. There's a tape of him carousing with drugs and prostitutes, and a group of blackmailers is trying to use this tape to extort him. So, Wade, this is obviously a show about televangelists, and from that description, you can already tell that this is one that's going to kind of purport to peel back the the flashy exterior and take a look at maybe some of the seediness that lies underneath all of that glitz. But my question for you to get us started is, you know, since we are both Christians and we are at least having a passing familiarity with the world of televangelism, I'm really curious to get your take on what you think of the show's vision of televangelism and Christianity, and also what you think of the way the show conceives of the characters who inhabit that world. Now, that's a great question to to begin with. And, I, you know, I was thinking about this show, and I like the idea of a telev- television show that examines televangelists. I think that there are so many televangelists who have led people astray, who have distorted the gospel, and I... I would love to see that explored. Plus, I mean, if you look at the history of of Jimmy Swaggart and some of them, there are some crazy things that have happened. Things that are just kind of hard to believe. You know, tires getting slashed, police being it just just crazy stuff. And I think this film or this television show wants to tap into that bizarre lifestyle. I I don't really know what its vision of Christianity is because it seems firmly encamped in that televangelist world. We get a couple of pastors, one in particular, who doesn't seem like a great guy. He's he's imperfect, but maybe not as terrible as the others. So I, I don't know. I, I think the big problem with this with this television show is that it seems plot driven instead of necessarily being concerned with digging into some of the ideas here. And and that was that was the biggest frustration as I'm as I'm watching this is okay, it's it's just about 
a bunch of crazy televangelists and they're trying to kind of cover up uh, some blackmail. They're trying to, to keep their empire together because they want to get more followers so they can get more money. And, and that's kind of it. And they're all corrupt in their own way, some more than others. I, I guess I was wanting to see a show that examined why people are attracted to these individuals. I wanted to see a, a show that, that kind of understands what the prosperity gospel is and explores that. And, perhaps finds a way to shine a light on hypocrisy but understand that the faith is bigger than hypocrisy and i just i don't think the show really wants to do that or cares to do that or even knows how maybe maybe they don't know how to do that and so um, we're left with kind of you know a show that's that's funny and it got some twists and turns but but that seems to be about it at least for me yeah the righteous gemstones is a very odd TV TV series. And what I mean by that is it is kind of doing a lot of things all at once uh, from episode to episode. And some of them work really well, in my opinion. Others of them may don't work all that well. Um, but all of those things put together make for a really uneven and frankly kind of baffling series at least in terms of if you were to ask me you know like what is the show's perspective like what is it what is it trying to say what is this show about i'm not necessarily i could tell you based on these first six episodes at least i i'm not, I'm not sure i could tell you what that is now there's individually strong moments i think the first episode particularly is very good at balancing kind of this comedic satirical tone with a pretty unvarnished look at how um, the the version of Christianity peddled by these televangelists can be married with you know excess and wealth and all of these other things in ways where it sometimes is difficult to tell just how much of it is sincere. And how much of it is perhaps unconscious, like these people have just kind of grown and been slightly corrupted by the circumstances in which they've they've risen to. And how much of it is just saying, oh, these, these people are just complete shysters and there's no reason to think that they're being sincere at all. All of those things are kind of floating around in the ether in the first episode. And I think that was really compelling to watch because it kind of promised a show that would maybe dig into that a little bit. That would be that would be funny, but it would also have ways of using humor to dig into that a little bit, to, to really try to explore, okay, well, Jesse is, you know, he's he's a drug addict and kind of abusive and, uh, you know, he cavorts with prostitutes and all these other things. Uh, but he does seem to kind of love his wife, but he also uses her uh, very proper uh, deference to him because they're, you know, in conservative uh, Christian circles. He does use that to get away with a lot. So that's kind of uh, an interesting tension to explore. And there's kind of that going around the table with all of these things. I think John Goodman is really strong and promises uh, a really interesting character to explore as this show goes on and reaches the end of its first season. Like how much does Eli Gemstone buy into his own hype and how much of it is just pure cynicism? That, But that's just the first episode the other episodes are kind of all over over the map. There's one that really spends a lot of time on this blackmail plot and kind of seems to be taking it seriously. The fifth episode is entirely a flashback that kind of picks apart the the familial tensions between the gemstone between Eli Gemstone and his brother-in-law and their children. And that's a very affecting family drama in a lot of ways. There's a confrontation between uh uh, the late Mrs. Gemstone and her brother that is is very moving in a lot of ways. But it's just very odd to have that sitting right next to an episode that has jokes about male genitalia and, you know, all, all of this kind of gross out humor. So it's difficult to really know what I'm supposed to be aiming at when watching this show. And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, no. And two, I, I, 
I think when people look at televangelists and younger, I, in my younger days, I was exposed to a lot of that. I think when people look at televangelists, they they think they're all shysters. And, and in some way, I, I totally get that. But I think a lot of them believe, they sincerely believe that they are doing God's work and that what they are doing is good and they're helping others. And that's always been a kind of a much more complicated, interesting angle. And in that sense, they could be more dangerous than a simple shyster. And I'm, we, we don't, we don't really get that because the television show, it, it doesn't really want to explore what they believe. Do they truly believe in this? And, and even their prayers are just kind of, kind of half-hearted. You, you mentioned that flashback episode and Walton Goggins plays another preacher. Uh, we, we talked about him and them that follow. He was a, a Pentecostal preacher in, in that. Uh, t- uh, and he, he's great in this show too. He, I like him. He's, quite he's really good. And there's this in the flashback episode, he performs uh, with the the late Mrs. Gemstone. He, he sings this song called Misbehaving and they're tap dancing and it is great. And that episode solidified something for me in terms of this television show. The idea of, of taking a televangelist like this crew that very much feels like 1980s Jimmy Swaggart, 1980s, 90s TBN, and putting them in the modern day world and having them opening churches and kind of surging in popularity, it just feels, it feels old. It feels behind. That world seems lost now. And there are televangelists who haven't, they haven't fallen but most of these, their numbers, their followers are dwindling each and every day. And so for me, the probably the more pertinent topic would be the celebrity pastor today, who is, in many respects, some of them, the new televangelists. So I almost wish that this television show was set in the 80s and that flashback episode was the norm. And I think that allows the humor uh, to be a little bit less extravagant because the crazy hair is what was happening in the 80s. Whereas now you get Danny McBride's hair and it just it feels different today. And and so it's just kind of qualities like that. I think we, we could have gotten a great 1980s televangelist drama that just explored all these different ideas that point in time in the world instead it and i i don't know i don't want to insult him but it it doesn't feel like danny mcbride gets it i don't know if he gets this world and i think i I mentioned something like this when i talked about them that follow it seems like oh that's this really crazy offshoot and it's really funny and there's a lot of humor that could be grabbed from that so I'm going to create a television show about it. And I don't know if he if he just if he gets it. And there are some scenes in this television show that feel strange. So at one point they offer this sort of like Buddhist food sacrifice to Mrs. Gemstone. And then in another scene they're ripping down items and saying, "Oh, you know, this band and this that's of the devil." It just doesn't jive with what with what we would expect from these characters. And then they're they're saying certain things, and we know that they're behind doors, but even in public they say certain things that these characters probably wouldn't say because it would hurt their reputation. So it is, it's a little, I don't know, it's a little off, and may, maybe McBride just doesn't get it, and I don't know his upbringing, and I don't know his research that he's done, but there just seems to be something kind of missing for this from this. Well, you have a you have a good point about kind of the anachronistic feel of this show, and it, because you're right, the the televangelist of our day is sort of the celebrity pastor who has an Instagram and who pastors a megachurch, but it's kind of this hip megachurch, and he you know wears skinny jeans and he has a hundred dollar haircut, and you know like, but he doesn't he's not ostentatious about it in the way that say you know, the televangelists of the 80s might have been. It's the, the the landscape has changed and it doesn't seem like the Righteous Gemstones is really 
dialed into that. It, it's weird because there are some things in this series, in the writing, that feels it feels very true even of some branches of conservative Christianity today. There's a scene where Jesse uh, and his wife go to the house of one of their friends. And this is a friend who has been captured on tape with Jesse doing all these horrible things as well. Uh, this friend's wife has kind of uncovered a little bit of evidence, so she's kind of want, wanting to know what's going on. And during this marriage counseling session, Jesse very cleverly uses the language of marital reconciliation and humility and repentance and prayer to essentially cover his tracks, cover his buddy's tracks, and make the wife feel as if she's the one who's kind of crazy, or she's the one who's imagining things. And that is something that, especially today, if you listen to the stories that are coming out of the the evangelical corners of the Me Too movement, that's the kind of thing that you hear all the time, that the language of faith has been often co-opted by bad uh, pastors to get away with stuff. And in that sense, it does feel as if the Righteous Gemstones really kind of does have its finger on the pulse of some aspects of Christianity that have gone astray in a way that feels fresh, not just stereotypical. But then you're right that there are other parts where, you know, they're at a they're they're out in public at a restaurant just throwing F-words at each other, and that's just not something that would be done by these characters, not because they're better than that, but just because they know that that's the sort of thing that would get them in trouble more than having three private jets. And you're right, I, I don't know that McBride really fully gets that, but he gets enough of that subculture that it's difficult to know how much of it is just not knowing his stuff and how much of it is just laziness. Yeah, and, and there are moments um, where... Some of the material rings true. I love the scene at, in episode one where there's this offertory and this hip guitar player comes up and is singing this song. And some of the songs in this television show, uh, they're original and they're kind of over the top cliche, but you can, you think to yourself, yeah, I could see that being written. And so this, this music, leader is is singing the song and it 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 actually feels like the celebrity pastor angle that that we are talking about it it feels true there are some funny moments when uh adam divine's character uh, kelvin uh he's the youth pastor and he has a t-shirt that says faith factor uh he's cool he says lit he's trying to do all these things to impress teenagers and and that's funny because it's this exaggeration of youth ministry culture so there are there are some aspects of this show that do work I, I'll, I'll say this too on just a kind of take those themes aside and just on a purely entertain entertainment level I I don't know if the show is that funny uh to really work as the comedy as a comedy it, it is funny uh i d didn't find myself laughing like i thought i would and then i don't know if i was invested in the characters and their struggles as much as the television show wanted me to so just kind of the technical aspects of the movie or the television show that i i don't know work all that great either yeah I, you know i i I feel like it, the comedy worked a little bit better for me than it did for you. There is a lot in the show that I do think is is quite funny, not just in the writing, but you know, in the first episode especially, there are visual jokes that Danny McBride, as the director for that episode, inserts in. Uh, for instance, you know, uh, one character is sort of uh, talking to another character, and he's. Uh, being very serious and, you know, uh, talking about, uh, life or death situation supposedly, but in the background behind him, there's a still image from this blackmail video that is just, you know, just projected on the wall behind him. That's just, that's a really good visual gag that didn't, wouldn't have necessarily had to be there if a, you know, a director was just sort of 
pointing the camera and having the actor say the lines. So I want to give credit where credit is due, but I think also the unevenness that I was talking about earlier, where some episodes feel very very serious and almost dramatic in tone and structure, and other episodes feel almost kind of like the the pineapple the Pineapple Express Danny McBride, where it's just sort of like they're just going to go out all out crazy and have just lots of uh, juvenile humor and just see what sticks. Th- those two just don't mesh together very well, and it kind of lends the episode to episode feel of the series kind of a whiplash feel. No, I, I think that's a, a great way to kind of encapsulate the television show. I I do want to ask you this. The Righteous Gemstones, are you going to close out this season? I think there's three, four episodes left. Or are you like, okay, I'm, I am I feel like I'm kind of done with the show. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm probably not going to continue with it. It's not, it's... It's not an unpleasant show. I don't dislike it wholeheartedly, but... There's a limited number of hours in the day, and frankly, there's just too many other good movies and TV shows to be watching to spend my time on this one. So, sorry, HBO and Danny McBride, uh, not really for me. What do you think, though, Wade? What's what's your projection of your future with The Righteous Gemstones? Yeah, so uh, I I don't know if I I mentioned this, but uh, or you mentioned this, but as of now, six episodes have aired. I think I think it is nine. I think nine is is the first season, and I am a completist, so I I think oh yeah maybe you know maybe I'll watch the last three. But here's what I'll usually say: oh yeah maybe I'll watch it if I have some extra time. And the truth is, I don't have any extra time because I'm like oh well <laughs> I don't have time because I'm watching this movie you know or this. So I probably won't get to it, but. Never say never. Yeah, well, that's a a pretty good philosophy. Makes total sense to me. Listeners, if you have seen any of The Righteous Gemstones and want to share your thoughts about its vision of the televangelist world, let us know. You can always tweet us and email us. We've given you the addresses to do that earlier in the episode. But we'll close things out now, Wade, with something we do every week, or almost every week anyway, which is offer a recommendation from the world of television or film for our listeners. What do you have for us this week? Well, I alluded to this earlier, but 2019 is becoming the year of the Brad. Brad Pitt gave an incredible performance in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He gave a fantastic performance here in Ad Astra. And I want to go back a few years to the previous year of the Brad, and that was 2011. Kevin, as you remember, Tree of Life was released in 2011, and another film, a film I'm going to recommend today, was released that year as well. It's... It's Bennett Miller's Moneyball. This is a film about the Oakland A's general manager, Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt. And he assembles this baseball team with a small budget. And he employs Jonah Hill's character to create almost an algorithm of baseball players. And what we get is kind of this motley crew that takes on the behemoth that is the New York Yankees. And the story of Moneyball kind of changed Major League Baseball uh, forever. And I think that this film by Miller is just fantastic. And Brad Pitt is incredible. I've been going back, Kevin, preparing for our uh, top 10 films of the decade that we'll have that podcast next year sometime. And this is one of those five-star films for me. I appreciate and something I appreciated about this watch is Pitt his character is struggling with the reality that any season where you don't win the championship is kind of this failed season and people just they they don't remember you well at the same time taking opportunities to celebrate victories along the way And that's what it means to be a sports fan. That's what it means to be a baseball fan. 
you always leave with a sense of failure when you don't win the World Series. But it's important as a fan to celebrate those wins when they do come and celebrate those seasons. So, yeah, I think the film does a fantastic job of that. It's it's one of my favorites, uh, 2011's Moneyball. Yeah, Moneyball's a, a good film, and it also uh, it features Brad Pitt. It also features a really great supporting performance by Philip Seymour oh, Hoffman. Man. So mm-hmm. if you're like me and you every now and then miss – Hoffman's screen presence terribly. Moneyball is a way to top yourself up on on his screen presence for for at least a little bit. Yeah, so. he he plays Art Howe, manager of the Oakland A's, who used to be the manager of the Houston Astros. So a little bit of connection. And I'm a big Houston Astros <laughs> fan. So are are you? I I don't think you've ever uh, mentioned <laughs> ever that. Talked about that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever. We mentioned we just that we just before. clinched the AL. E, or AL West, sorry, and we're competing with the Bohemoth, the New York Yankees, for best record in baseball. And oh. that would bring home field advantage. So it's just kind of a lot happening right now, uh, which is really exciting. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that on your behalf, even if I'm not entirely sure what <laughs> any of what you just said means. Um, my recommendation, since we were talking uh, just a little bit ago about there just being so many good films and TV shows to not really want to spend your time on one that's not really doing it for you, I've got a TV show that will do it for you. And as luck would have it, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of its very first episode, I am, of course, talking about Edgar Wright's wonderful TV series, Spaced. It uh, started airing in 1999. It had its second season in 2001. It's 14 episodes, each one about a half hour long, and it is just tremendous comedic television. It's, of course, it's directed by Edgar Wright, so already the just the the directing in it the amount of artfulness and energy that is brought to it is just leagues and leagues beyond most 99% of of other tv shows of its era and maybe even today but i have a soft spot for it because it's a show about uh pop culture obsession about pop culture immersion and how that can be both a foundation for friendship and also an impediment to uh, friendship. And it kind of explores all that in a very, very interesting way, but also in just a hilarious way. There's a, a paintball episode that is just a wonderful kind of parody of war movies. And there's another episode about going out to clubs that has a running gag with a payoff that is absolutely killer. It's worth checking out for anybody highly recommend it especially if you're an edgar wright completist so spaced from 1999 and 2001 is is my pick for this week well i have not i haven't seen it i've heard about it of course where can i get that is is, do i just need to like buy the dvds how do i get a hold of that you know once upon a time it was streaming on netflix i think netflix might have lost the right since then so i don't have an answer for you right now it has gotten a dvd release and i think i I follow edgar wright on twitter and he did seem to hint that there was some sort of special anniversary release coming out so you should be able to find it at libraries or through netflix's disc by mail service which i will always plug whenever i get an opportunity (laughs) to so it's out there if you if you know where to look yeah well I, i i i need to check that out i I'm finishing up. I my life changed forever. I I discovered Nathan for you on Hulu. I'm almost done with that, and I need those half an hour comedy episodes that just kind of they're like the cherry on top of an evening. You know what I mean? Like you you go through the long day, you're about to go to bed, and you're like, let me just watch a half an hour comedy television episode, and that just kind of tops off the day, and it really is a great way to go to bed. Yeah, well, Spaced sounds like it is going to scratch that itch for you. <laughs> so definitely check it out. Listeners, yeah. thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. That is all we have for today. Make sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. Also, if you have any feedback, once again, shoot us a message at Pod on Twitter 
We'd love to interact with you online. Or if you've got a longer message, maybe something we can read on the air, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLennathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. 